When I was in the first grade, I started a business. I had the uh, school supply list from the year before, from kindergarten, and I I decided that I, being so old now, wanted to sell school supplies to those younger kindergartners. So I had my mom take me to the store, loaded up on school supplies, loaded up her trunk. We came home, went into the garage, and I pulled out my red wagon, and I stacked my school supplies in there all very nicely, and I started going door to door looking for kindergartners to sell school supplies to. This is a picture of me in the first grade. You can see this young entrepreneur. There I am, work in the neighborhood. And I found out very quickly that it was actually the kindergarten moms that had the buying power. And uh, kindergarten moms were actually a pretty good customer because they were emotional about their kids going to kindergarten. And so they wanted the very best school supplies for their kids. So I went door to door, house to house, knocking on the door, asking my friend if I could see their mom and selling school supplies. I was thinking back over those years uh, this week, this red wagon is a pretty good symbol of those years in my life. It's a pretty good marker of those years, kind of a mile marker, because I look back on those years and I I remember them well. There was a sense to which those years were idyllic. Uh, They were a Norman Rockwell red wagon pulling kind of life. I enjoyed school and enjoyed my friends and I loved playing outside until dark every day with my friends. I was obviously handsome, clearly. Had a few dollars in my pocket from my business. My parents were Christians. Uh, My dad was the pastor of our church. I got along well with my brother and sister. There wasn't much that a young boy could want or need. And as I uh, grew a a bit older, first grade on, I, I began to understand some things about the gospel. I mentioned my parents were Christians and My dad was at a church. I was around the church a lot. So I began to understand some things about the gospel. And I didn't really sense this, you know, maybe I wasn't aware of the deep need or some void in my life at a young age. I wasn't fully aware of my sinful condition or my sinful nature. But I I did, when I heard it, believe that it was good news, that the good news of Jesus Christ, that God would send his son to, to die for me, to provide a way, a means for relationship with God for eternity. That, that was good. I, I wanted that. So when I was 11 years old, I trusted Christ. I placed my trust in Jesus Christ. I was in the back seat of our old blue station wagon. Anybody have a station wagon in here years ago? Yeah. Old blue station wagon. Pulled in the garage. My dad turned off the car. It was just me and him in the car. I climbed up into the front seat and I asked my dad a question about Christ. My dad proceeded to, to share with me the gospel that God had sent his son to earth. He was born of a virgin, a, a, a man and God, human and divine. He came to earth and he lived a perfect life because none of the rest of us could. He died on a cross for our imperfections, for our sin and selfishness. Was buried because he died, buried in a grave and he raised on the third day, proving his power over sin and death. And my dad said to me, for all those who believe that, who place their trust in Christ, that Christ would save them, have a relationship with God, that their eternity would be secure. And so I believed on that day. I, I believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I had no idea at the time that, that that gospel, my basic understanding, just a basic definition, which was enough for salvation would actually be the foundation for how I would then grow over the course of my life. 
I took that basic understanding of the gospel. I, I knew just a small part, just the definition, but it was enough. It was enough to know God. I walked across the street and decided that my friend needed to know God, and so I shared what I knew about God. It took me about 45 seconds, all that I knew about God, and my friend Les trusted Christ. That was enough for him to trust Christ. And then we got the spiritual things out of the way. We went and shot, shot hoops. It was a basketball goal. Very simple in those days, but it was enough. And it was something that God would use to continue to transform me and change me over the course of a life. You know, so often when we think about salvation or we think about the gospel itself, we, we tie it to a singular event in our lives. It's, it's the moment that we first believed, that moment or that period of time where it became true to us. We, we connected solely to that. And of course, that is a, a, a very significant part of the gospel, but the gospel's actually more than that. It's much more than that. The gospel is how we are saved, that, that is how we are justified, theological term justification, but it's also the core for how we grow. The theological term there is sanctification. So justification is this one-time legal act by God where we are declared not guilty, but righteous instead, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us or credited to our account. Our legal standing before God is changed in the instant that we believe. But nothing has yet changed about our character, has it? The penalty's been paid by Christ. We are seen through the eyes of God as righteous, Our eternity is forever secure, but we are still sinners, aren't we? Enter sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing work of God with us to make us more and more free from our sin and more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more like the one that saved us. Sanctification is like peeling back the layers of an onion, like each season in our life, we we peel back another layer of the onion. We peer down into the depths of the gospel. We see the many facets and colors, reflection of the gospel around us and, and in our life as well. And we peer down at each layer. We look down into the onion that is the gospel. We we see seasons that our life is is far worse. Our sin and our selfishness, it's far more ugly than we ever thought. And the gospel is far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. The riches of God's grace, it just keeps pouring over us. And in that process, we become more like our Savior. See, the gospel is the fuel. It's the foundation for both, both justification and sanctification. It's the reason that people say, I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. I need the gospel every single minute of every single day. It's because the gospel is what continues to transform us over the course of a lifetime. Uh, This is a picture of me, my sophomore year of high school. We see it up here on these side screens. There I am, number 10, sophomore year of high school. And this was a very different season for me, very different than the one that I just described. I, I got an old photo album out this week and I was looking at pictures of me from 10th grade, sophomore year to to senior year in high school. And in every one of the pictures, I had a smile that looked just like this one. But there's a lot that's behind that smile. 
That smile was hiding something. You see, in my high school years, I, I was much more like this beach ball. I had a huge smile on the outside, but I was empty on the inside. Felt this deep sense of void on the inside. Externally, everything looked good about me. Most people who knew me would say, yeah, that, that kid's a happy kid. Successful, he achieved stuff. He's, I was good at school, made good grades. I was a decent athlete. My, my friends were good friends. I, I, I engaged well with adults. My teachers and coaches respected me. I was a good kid. I didn't drink. I didn't chase girls. I was responsible and respectful and I pretended to be happy. I pretended that this was actually the case. Everybody who knew me didn't really know me. I didn't even really know myself. See, I knew something about the gospel, but the gospel had not yet changed my approach to life. I was still trying to save myself by being good, and I was coming up empty. Tim Keller says that there are, there are two ways that people try to save themselves. He teaches this out of his, his message on the prodigal son or, or the two brothers as it's referred to. There are two ways that people try to save themselves, try to become their own savior. One is by, by trying to have a good life by making our personal pursuit of happiness the ultimate. That in essence is that we try to become our own God. That, that's how we try to save ourselves and have a good life. Other way that we try to save ourselves is we try to make a good life by having or being good, by following all the rules, so that somehow we might force God to be good to us because we've been good in the way that He's told us to be good. We've obeyed Him well. See, I was definitely number two, right? Uh, definitely trying to save myself by being good, but I, I, I was hollow on the inside. I didn't understand the grace of God. I didn't understand that I was accepted, not not because I could do something for God, but because I was simply me, just me, just as I am. Just me was enough for God to be accepted, to be called a a child of God. And I just didn't get that. That didn't register for me until college. And in college, I, I, I found a community of men who not only accepted me, but they helped me to understand the acceptance and the freedom that we just talked about out of 2 Corinthians a moment ago, the liberty that's found in Jesus Christ. I began to enjoy my relationship with God when I saw other men enjoying their relationship with God and the depths of that in their own heart at a heart level. I, I, I began to, to feel a sense of joy that I never felt before. I felt free to be me and that God made me uniquely. I, I, I started in the Old Testament and I looked at the creation account again with new eyes. And I saw that you and I, human beings, are God's most prized creation. I just kind of missed that, at least the significance of it. Most prized creation, all these beautiful things that God's created, land and seas and trees and hills and fish and birds and animals, all those amazing things that God created. And then he looked at us and said, this is very good. This is my most prized creation. I did all this so that I might have relationship with my most prized creation. Then you turn over to the Psalms. 
The, the psalmist talks about how each one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made. God paid attention to the detail that he made each one of us. No person has ever walked the earth that's not unique, different from everybody else. And of course, you come to the gospel account of Jesus Christ and you see just how much a father loves his kids by sacrificing his own son. That, that was incredible to me. And that hollowness that I felt inside, the gospel, the intensity of it, it just, just started poking holes in that outer shell and filling me up on the inside. It's through that community of men, we, we actually had a verse that we came back to often. Psalm 133 verse one says, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. In that sense of community, I, I found the good pleasure of those men and of the Lord. How good it was to know him in that way. And it was through that community of, of men that, that I was led to ultimate community, at least humanly speaking, and that is marriage. Shortly after college, I got married to my wife and boy, was I in for a big surprise. Instead of a picture here, I wanna show you a short video. Some of you have seen this before. I showed it several years ago in here. I, I found out recently that it's been floating around on Facebook, so you may have seen it there. Many of you probably haven't. Those that have, I don't think you'll mind seeing it again. And it's a great picture of of our lives, Hillary's and mine, as young marrieds. It's a video that was shot at our reception and then Hillary's mom put it to music. So take a look. As you can see, I was not prepared for marriage. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when Hillary went after the cake, did you see this part? When after the cake, she almost stabbed me with the knife. <laughs> knew then what her priorities were in marriage. I knew right then. You know, Hillary and I, we did have a good biblical understanding of marriage. We really did. We, we had premarital counseling that was fantastic with a couple of pastors. We were very serious about marriage. We took our vows seriously. Our parents had stayed married, which is more rare in this day. We're really grateful for the model that our parents both gave us. We had some understanding of biblical marriage, but we didn't know how to be married. Just didn't know how to do that. And what was exposed in me very quickly was that I, I didn't actually know how to love somebody else. 
You know, I, I, I knew how to engage and try to serve and protect, provide maybe, but I, I didn't know how to connect with my wife on any kind of intimacy level. Intimacy was lacking in our marriage. And, and it led to a very difficult season for us where we felt very isolated from one another. We felt very lonely in our marriage. And it was at that point in our young married years that the gospel began to find its way into my life again. I, I brought a cake today just as a symbol of those, those years in our married life. And it, it's a symbol because it, it reminds me of those years, certainly. But it's also a symbol in this way. It, it makes me remember how desperate I was in those days for the gospel. How great my need was in those days for the gospel. Just became so aware of that in the gospel and invaded my life as, as I got more and more desperate realizing how disconnected I was from my own heart and how disconnected I was from my wife. I, I got help and talked to some guys that were around me and talked about life and I opened my scripture and I, I started working through what, what, what love is and tried to figure it out. And, and what I realized about myself was that I, I, I couldn't love my wife well because I didn't know love myself. I didn't know the love of God myself. I had never allowed it to really penetrate my heart. I certainly could speak of God's love, like by definition, my, my brain might have understood that God in fact loved, but I, I never allowed that to fully embrace me. I certainly had never embraced it from him. And, and as that got exposed in my life, I realized, you know, what's true about me is that I can't give what I don't have. As I opened God's word and, and sat with other men and began to unpack my own heart, I, I began to see the love of Jesus Christ. This deep love, this deep affection, this unbelievable lavish movement toward us. And as I began to receive that love, I, I'll never forget really looking in depth at the story of the prodigal son story of the two brothers. Certainly I'd always been an elder brother in my life the way I approached it. But I imagined myself in the shoes of the prodigal son. I imagined the father, God in this case, symbolic of God, running toward me, me falling on my knees, staring my father in the face with nothing to offer, absolutely nothing and everything to gain. That love's different than the love that I knew prior to it, the gospel just found its way into my heart and it was through love. And as I began to receive and embrace that love from God at a very different level in my own life, then I was in turn able to start offering some of that love to my wife, which began to change the depth and the connection and the intimacy and the unity in our marriage. I want you to take your Bible out if you would and open to 1 John chapter 4. First John's toward the end of the Bible. You can go to Revelation, just turn back past Jude, and then there's three Johns, one, two, and three. This is First John, chapter four. I'm gonna begin in verse seven. I'm gonna read to verse 11. You can't overstate the connection between God's love and the gospel, and we're gonna see it right here. Verse seven, beloved, John writes, let us love one another for love is from 
God. Where's love found? Love is from God. He's the author of love, all love from God. And everyone, second part of verse seven, who loves God is born of God and knows God. Isn't that interesting that you actually can't know authentic, real, true love apart from knowing God. So all the love that gets defined in our culture today is actually not love. This is love. Love is a person. Look at what it says in verse eight. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. And if God is love, then love is a person that we can know. And by knowing him, know his love. And by loving him, know love for others. Verse nine, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. How how did love of God get manifested in our lives? Through the gospel. So you can't separate these two things. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we loved God first, but that he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And you can when you know the love of God. That leads me to today. How's the gospel at work in my life today? How how is God sanctifying me today and and that is best illustrated by a movie poster movie that I saw this year with my kids it's the movie inside out how many of you guys have seen this movie not a whole lot of us it's an incredible movie it's it's funny that a Disney film would be where God is sanctifying me today but it actually is It's a Disney film that's produced by Pixar. It's a story that's set in the mind of a young girl. She's 12. Her name is Riley. And her mind, her emotions are personified. Five emotions are personified. Joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. And they're personified in this transition in her life where she moves from her home and her school and her neighborhood and her friends across the country to a new city where dad has a new job. And over the course of that move, what's interesting about the movie is that it actually spends as much time, it's as much concerned about what's going on inside Riley as it is what's going on outside. As much concerned about her thoughts and her emotions and her affections and her motivations as it is her circumstances and her behavior and her actions. It's a unique film in that way. And that's what God's showing me right now. He's showing me that the the inside of me is just as important as the outside. My thoughts, my emotions, my affections, my motivations, my desires, what God has instilled in me, those things are as important as what's going on outside of me, the way that I serve and engage others and care for my family, both significantly important. But I have for my whole life overemphasized one, the out, and underemphasized the other. And those two things, they, they go together. They do. It's Jesus who says that I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. We all know this. A branch on the ground, it 
doesn't bear any fruit, but a branch that's connected to the vine, that is connected at a heart level to Jesus Christ, that, that understands that my emotions, my affections, my motivation, uh, all those things are, are connected to Jesus and he is changing and adapting and growing those in me, that those things are attached. When those things are attached, life is actually lived. You're actually transformed from the inside out. The gospel is meant to change us. I tried my whole life, 41 years, to try to live the gospel from the outside in as if somehow my behavior would change. If I could will that to happen, then that thing, that very thing would change my heart. No, it doesn't work that way. It's just the opposite. I don't have time to go here this morning, but if you open your Bible and you look at uh, Mark verses five through eight, you don't have to turn there now, but if you go read that verse, uh, chapter five through eight in the book of, of Mark, you'll see that this is building on uh, Jesus' disciples have come to follow him. He has the 12. There, there are parables that he teaches in chapter four uh, to the crowds and to his disciples as well. And then over, the chapters, over chapters five through eight, it's this series of miracles. The first miracles that Jesus performs, the disciples are amazed by these miracles. And what's fascinating to me is that in each of the accounts, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the 10 lepers that Jesus heals, and the one that comes back, when Jesus exercises a demon out of a, out of a man and, and it runs off the cliff and a, a group of pigs, all these incredible things that blow the disciples' mind. What Jesus done, and I never really observed this, what Jesus does is that he actually at the end of each account or somewhere in the middle of each account, he'll, he'll turn to his disciples and he'll say something to them about their hearts. What's interesting about the disciples is that they are amazed by Jesus's work. He feeds the 5,000 and they're like, and there were 12 baskets left over. They're like totally blown away, but they don't see the hardness of their own heart. Jesus keeps addressing that with them over and over and over again. And it's fascinating in this way, in that, that as, as like you take the feeding of the 5,000, for example, when, when Jesus finishes teaching, he's been teaching all day, 5,000 represents men in this case, so it's probably close to 15,000 that were there that day, men, women, and children. Jesus finishing, finishes a long day of teaching. The disciples come to him and go, whoa, that was, never heard anything like that. It's incredible. Man, let's go take a break. Let's, head back across the sea to our spot and build the campfire. We're wore out. And Jesus says, no, these people have been sitting here all day. They're hungry just like we are. Let's feed them. How are you gonna feed them? They're amazed again. And Jesus turns to them at the end of that account and he says, do you not see that the love and compassion that I have for these people I have for you? Do you not see that your heart is hard to the love and compassion that I just demonstrated for you? Do you not see that? Do you not understand that unless you give me your heart, I can't give you all of my heart. And so right now in my life, the gospel is digging down, trying to get to the depths of my own heart. Grace of God penetrating deeply. And the gospel is compelling me to, to match my my emotional life with my spiritual life in the same way that I've done the works of my hands, that I would match my head and my heart and my hands all together. One thing that's been underemphasized would come to par, come up to level with the other two things. God would match 
gospel compels me to match my affections with my behavior and my motivations with my actions. The gospel is compelling me to live from the inside out. The gospel is more than I could have ever imagined. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to consider this just for a moment before the Lord. It's simply this. Where's the gospel at work in your life right now? How's the gospel sanctifying you? Maybe for some of you in the room, it's the first time that you heard with clarity the the gospel itself, and you're like, I I think it's that the, the Lord would have me believe. Maybe I would believe for the first time that this gospel is actually true. I'd place my trust in Christ. You might be in that spot. Or you may have placed your trust in Christ and you can look back over your years and see how God has changed you along the way. I'm asking you right now, what's God doing? What's God after? What part of your heart does he want to unlock toward him? And I want you to take a couple of minutes and just consider that before the Lord. So go ahead and do that. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts open to your gospel's work in our lives. That it might continue to change us and grow us. Would you use your Holy Spirit to prompt and to guide and to lead? Show us places of sin. We're convicted, but your grace covers Allow us to repent and experience forgiveness and move forward from that place. You refine and prune change. Show us what it looks like to match the emotional life with the spiritual life, physical life with the spiritual life, that all that would be unified, that what's true about our hearts would be true about our lives. What people see in our lives would be honest from the deepest part of us. 
that you would grow us more and more and more into the image of your son. That that would be our example to others. In our weakness and in your strength to grow us, that people would see the deep change in our lives and be drawn to you. Your gospel would continue to work in us and through us for all of our days here on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I told my story today, it was intentional in this way, as a setup for where we're going in our next series. Michael Lloyd, Rob Sweet, the worship team, uh, talked about this together and said, man, this, this would be a great setup. And where we're going over the next five weeks, it's a five-week series on the gospel out of 1 Corinthians 15. 11 verses there that are so rich and so meaningful that we'll spend all five weeks in that text as Paul writes about the gospel and how it is even more than we hope, even more than, we just, than I describe today. See, when I, I was pulling this red wagon as a kid, I had no idea what all the gospel would do in my life to this point and what all the gospel would do from this day forward. But we're gonna unpack that together. And so I'd encourage you this week to take your Bible, read 1 Corinthians 15, those first 11 verses, and come ready next week to experience the indescribable joy that's found in God's grace. We'll see you next week.